Victory is furthest just when one believes it closest. For it is by no means so simple to become a hero. I'm Carlos Botero. And I'm Orly Demeray. In this episode of the Houston Symphonies On the Music, we explore Gustav Mahler's Titanic Symphony No. 1, a work that follows the journey of a youthful hero from the innocence of nature to an epic struggle with fate. Join us as we discover the surprising people and ideas that shaped Mahler's first symphonic masterpiece. Sometime near the middle of March in 1888, a 27-year-old composer dashed off a letter to a friend. My dear Fritz, well, my work is finished. Now I should like to have you by my piano and play it for you. Probably you are the only person who will find me unchanged in it. The others will doubtless wonder at a number of things. It has turned out so overwhelming. It came gushing out of me like a mountain torrent. This summer you shall hear it. Perhaps one of these days I shall tell you how it happened. Fondest greetings. And write soon about how you and your wife are. Greetings to everyone. Yours, Gustav. That young composer was Gustav Mahler. He had just completed a work that would ultimately become known as his first symphony. He was now working as a conductor at the Opera House in Leipzig, and had just had a major hit with his completion of an unfinished opera by the long-dead composer Karl Maria von Weber, one of his musical heroes. Mahler was confident that his new work for orchestra will be just as popular. This success had not come easily, however. The son of German-speaking Jews, Mahler was born in 1860 in a small hamlet in modern-day Czech Republic which was then part of the sprawling Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mahler later described his family's first home as a wretched little house. The windows didn't even have glass in them. Nearby was the tiny village and a few scattered huts. Despite these humble beginnings, Mahler did not, in fact, grow up in poverty. Shortly after he was born, the family moved to the bustling town of Iglau. There, Mahler's father was able to expand his liquor business and ultimately moved the family into a townhouse just a few paces away from Iglau's celebrated town square. Mahler's childhood was not easy, however. His parents' marriage was an unhappy one, and of the 13 children Mahler's mother bore his father, Mahler was the eldest of seven who survived infancy. The young Mahler was frequently in need of escape. He became an insatiable bookworm, devouring the German literary classics in his father's library and became well known for his dreamy absent-mindedness. His greatest interest, however, was music. As a boy, he would have been exposed to music at his family's synagogue, as well as bohemian folk music, Austrian landler, military band music, and even some of the classics of opera at the local theater. He loved it all, especially the marches played by the military barracks band in the town square. After starting out on accordion, he began taking piano lessons at about four or five. Mahler progressed quickly and even began to compose his own original music. 
Mahler's father, however, never considered a career in music a possibility for his son. Quite by chance, Mahler happened to play for a man named Gustav Schwartz while visiting friends in a nearby town. Deeply impressed, Schwartz went out of his way to convince Mahler's father that his son should go to Vienna to study music with the best. He arranged for Mahler to play for Julius Epstein, an imminent piano teacher at the conservatory in Vienna, who was impressed by the young Mahler's abilities and told his father that he should study music seriously. Had it not been for that chance encounter, Mahler may never have had a career in music. Thus, at the age of 15, Mahler left home for the big city, Vienna. The city of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Brahms, Bruckner, and of course, the reigning waltz king, Johann Strauss Jr. If you wanted to make it as a composer, this was the place to be. Mahler studied piano and composition, conducting wasn't taught at this time, and also attended lectures at the University of Vienna. He was exposed to the latest music and ideas and took a keen interest in philosophy. It must have been around this time that Mahler abandoned organized religion in favor of a highly personalized set of spiritual beliefs influenced by his favorite authors, philosophers, and composers. As we will see, music would be a central part of Mahler's lifelong quest for spiritual truth and a higher purpose. Eventually, the day came when Mahler was no longer a student, and he found himself in need of an income. In a letter to a friend, he explained, The need to be active in the world and earn my living led me to the theater, where I have worked unremittingly since my twentieth year. At the start, the whole petty misery of the provinces, and later the gross misery of the hallowed places of art. Mahler became an opera conductor. Whether he was conducting a spa town orchestra or a production at a major opera house, Mahler was an insatiable perfectionist and sought to raise the standards of musical performance wherever he went. This often made him enemies in the orchestra pit, but before long he gained a reputation as one of the best conductors in the German-speaking world. Not everyone was enthralled with him, however. Despite the fact that he no longer adhered to the tenets of Jewish religion, he faced a near-constant onslaught of attacks throughout his career from a growing number of anti-Semites in the press. Anti-Semitism was on the rise in Germany and Austria and would only get worse as time went on. Mahler often found the career of an opera conductor frustrating. He constantly had to deal with opera house politics, recalcitrant musicians and anti-Semitic criticism. He hoped that he could establish himself as a composer and make enough money from his works to free himself from the need to conduct. He had written a few works that he considered good enough to publish, but they attracted little attention. What Mahler needed was a breakthrough piece, something that would put his name on the map. His completion of Weber's The Dry Pintos had been a success. Perhaps now people will listen to his own original music. While some of the ideas for what would become his first symphony may have been brewing in his mind for years, most of the work in this piece was done in just six weeks, early in 1888. Mahler, however, was unsure of what to call it. It was so unconventional that he wasn't sure if it was a symphony at all. 
Over the previous 150 years or so, symphonies had evolved in such a way that they followed a certain pattern. They were usually divided into four parts or movements, which progressed from fast to slow to a dance to a fast finale. Each movement usually followed familiar patterns that helped audiences follow and digest a symphony, even on the first hearing. Mahler's new work flouted many of these usual patterns, so much so that he even hesitated to call it a symphony. There was a newer, edgier alternative, however, the tone poem. Tone poems were orchestral works that sought to paint a picture or to tell a story through music. They were often referred to, and derisively by some, as program music, because these pieces were usually accompanied by program notes that explained the story they were meant to depict. Tone poems tended to be more freeform than symphonies, because their patterns were influenced by the story rather than tradition. Program music was a newer trend, and its proponents proclaimed that it was the music of the future. Music without any story became known as absolute music, and musical life in the 1800s was often dominated by debates as to which was superior. Advocates of program music said absolute music was hopelessly bound by tradition and stuck in the past. Champions of absolute music countered that if music needed a program to make sense, it probably wasn't very good, and that music should be able to stand on its own without the help of a story. Mahler was kind of stuck in the middle. On the one hand, he didn't want to blindly follow tradition, and he hoped he could use music to explore the spiritual questions that he grappled with throughout his life. On the other hand, he wrote that, as long as I can express an experience in words, I should never try to put it into music. He felt that words couldn't do justice to the ideas he wanted to express, that only through music could people understand what he had to say. At first, he tried to compromise, calling his first symphony a symphonic poem, and later a tone poem in symphonic form. And he even wrote up program notes describing each movement and gave the work the nickname Titan, after a rather obscure 1,000-page novel by one of his favorite German romantic authors, John Paul. Have you read Titan? Nope. You? Can't say that I have. However, most the scholars agree that the symphony has little to do with the story of the novel. Indeed, Mahler felt that his program notes were actually making it harder rather than easier for people to understand his music. So he eventually disavowed them altogether and decided to call the work a symphony once and for all. Nevertheless, in private conversation with his friends, Mahler shared some of the ideas that inspired his music. If only we could have listened in on what they said. Fortunately for us, one of Mahler's best friends kept a diary. A professional violist herself, Natalie Bauer-Lechner, first met Mahler back in their student days at the Vienna Conservatory. Years later, they reconnected, and scholars generally agree that Natalie fell in love with Mahler. They would spend hours discussing music, and Natalie left detailed accounts of what Mahler told her in her diaries. Unfortunately, Mahler did not return her feelings, and the two parted ways when he married someone else. During the years of her friendship with Mahler, however, she gathered countless insights into his music, which scholars today believe to be quite credible. 
As we discuss this symphony, the writings of Natalie and other friends, as well as Mahler himself, will serve as our guide. Why don't we let Natalie tell us how the symphony begins? Why not? Natalie wrote, With the first note, we are in the midst of nature, in the forest where the sunshine of the summer day quivers and glimmers through the branches. Nature was an important source of inspiration for Mahler. Throughout his life, he loved hiking through Austria's alpine landscapes and hoped that by contemplating nature, he could discover answers to some of his burning metaphysical questions. In a letter to a conductor who was preparing to perform this piece, Mahler wrote, The introduction to the first movement is not music, but the sound of nature. Indeed, Mahler wrote into the score, wie ein Naturlaut, or like a sound of nature, on the first page, instructing the strings to play as softly as possible. The strings of the orchestra play one note, A, across many octaves using a technique known as harmonics. Normally, when a string player depresses a string with a finger, only the part of the string in front of the finger vibrates as the bow draws across it. But at points on the string that correspond to the ratios of its natural overtones, if you just rest your finger on top of the string without pressing down all the way, the string vibrates on both sides of the finger, producing a silvery sound called a harmonic. The idea for this effect was actually a last-minute stroke of genius that came to Mahler in the middle of rehearsals for the premiere. He later related to Natalie, when I heard the A, it sounded far too substantial for the shimmering and glimmering of the air that I had in mind. It then occurred to me that I could have all the strings play harmonic. Now I had the effect I wanted. We soon hear other sounds of nature calling out from deep in the woods. One note has now become two notes, an A and an E. The interval between this A and E is known as a falling fourth because there are four notes from A to E and it soon grows and expands into a chain of falling fourths. A faint fanfare bubbles up from the clarinets in response, which is soon echoed by distant trumpets. Mahler actually instructs the trumpet players to go backstage to create this effect. This was a trick well known in the opera house where Mahler worked, but it was rarely used in the concert hall. It was considered to be too theatrical, too programmatic for a symphony. Indeed, the sound of distant trumpets does conjure up extra-musical images. Could this be a hunting party of medieval knights in the distance? These trumpets seem to call to us not only from far away, but also from long ago. There is also the sound of cuckoos. The horns then play a melody marked, very softly sung. 
one last figure appears, low in the cellos and basses. This new idea sounds dark and ominous. This is in part because it uses the notes of the chromatic scale. Up until this point, the music has used notes from either the D minor scale or the D major scale. Both of these scales are centered on the note D. The chromatic scale, however, uses notes in between the ones found in normal major and minor scales. This scale has no beginning or end, so using it can create a feeling of tension because it makes it harder to tell where the music is going. Consider this new idea. If it had used the notes of a normal D minor scale, it might have sounded like this. Instead, it uses the chromatic scale and sounds like this. This figure introduces a basic building block of the symphony, rising scales. As it creeps upward, we hear the falling force layer on top of it, becoming faster and denser. The uneasy atmosphere is quickly dispelled by cuckoo's calls, leading to a new melody in a more flowing tempo. On different occasions, Mahler compared this movement to a sunrise or the coming of spring after a long winter. Surely, this is the moment when the sun comes out, bringing warmth and new life to nature. It's no accident that this melody is extremely hummable. Mahler actually took it from a song he had already written, called Ging heute Morgen übers Feld, or I went this morning over the fields. Dew still hung on the grass. The jolly finch spoke to me. Hey, you there, good morning. Isn't it turning out to be a beautiful world? Chirp, chirp, beautiful and brisk. How the world pleases me. A picture of youthful innocence. I think it's safe to say Mahler is having a Sound of Music moment. Sure. Rodgers and Hammerstein didn't just make up all that the hills are alive stuff, you know. There's a long tradition in Austria and Germany of hiking through the mountains. Do you think it will be a stretch to refer to this as the joy of nature theme for short? I like it. Joy of nature it is. Unusually, Mahler wrote both the words and the music to this song. The use of a song as the basis for a large-scale orchestral piece was also quite original. The way Mahler uses songs in his symphonies is almost like a secret code. The words to the song can suggest hidden meanings in purely instrumental music. Even without knowing the words, Mahler has given us enough clues already to understand what he means, and the music is lovely in and of itself. 
In contrast with the eerie sounds and echoes of the introduction, this melody introduces a more subjective perspective to the music. Its vocal quality gives the music a more human feel, and its appearance in the cellos suggests the masculine voice of a baritone. Natalie reports that Mahler did indeed have in mind a powerfully heroic individual when composing this symphony. Could this be our protagonist? This melody, incidentally, begins with the interval of a falling fourth and continues with an ascending scale. It sounds right here because it evolves from what we have already heard. It begins in D major, centered on the same note as the introduction, D. But it almost immediately glides up a fifth to A major. A major is a very closely related to D major. The two keys only differ by one note. The effect is a subtle brightening of the sound. Typically, after moving to a new key, a composer will introduce a new theme. Instead, the same melody continues to unfurl in A major. This is just one of the unconventional features of the symphony that may have caused Mahler to label it a tone poem at first. Audiences expected tone poems to be more freeform, so they would have been more open to Mahler's breaks with tradition. The first movement of a symphony was traditionally a self-contained drama with structural complexity and a clear emotional arc of its own. Since Beethoven, composers had increasingly sought to shift the weight of the symphonic form toward the finale, building up to the end. As this movement unfolds, it becomes clear that it is almost an introduction to the whole symphony, beginning a narrative arc that will only climax in the final movement. As a conductor, Mahler was well-versed in the art of orchestration, and even in his first symphony he created many ingenious effects. This melody might seem fairly simple at first, but listen to how it is passed from one instrument to another. The different instruments weave in and out of each other, creating a sense that the melody is blossoming, growing. dies away and then goes back to the beginning of the melody, giving us a second chance to become familiar with it. The second time the music dies away, the Sound of Nature theme returns. This time a new bird call derived from fragments of the Joy of Nature melody appears in the flute. The still, quiet nature music progresses, much as it did before, with one main difference. The cellos occasionally play a fragment of the Joy of Nature melody. Perhaps our hero is now in the depths of the forest, contemplating his place in the universe? The cellos' music soon turn from D major to D minor, and the mood darkens.
the ominous falling forts and rising chromatic idea returned. A melancholy melody in the horns appears. Out of this shadowy orchestral texture, a portentous cuckoo call emerges. A broken chord in the harp, and we return to the sunshine of D major. A new horn melody appears. The textures and character of the joy of nature melody return, but the melody itself has continued to evolve as if picking up where it left off. Through a series of harmonic slides of hand, the music slips into new keys, venturing farther and farther away from D major. D flat major, F major, and F minor. A new idea appears. It is actually derived from the rising chromatic idea we first encountered deep in the forest of the introduction. This becomes this becomes this. The appearance of this new idea seems to stop the music in its tracks. The hunting horns return no longer so far off in the distance. The tension rises and rises until it seems unbearable. Finally, breakthrough. It is as if those hunting horns from long ago are now upon us. A familiar horn melody greets us as we return to the home key of D major. This pattern of tension leading to a moment of breakthrough will become one of Mahler's musical obsessions. This is not the last breakthrough in this symphony. The movement ends with a flurry of the joy of nature melody. And a musical joke. Natalie reports that Mahler said, the end of this movement will certainly not be understood by the audience. It will fall flat, though I could easily have made it more effective. My hero bursts into a roar of laughter and runs away. She goes on to relate Mahler's visit to some friends upon laying down his pen. When I finished the movement, it was about midnight. I ran to the Webers and played it to them both. They had to help me out at the piano, playing above and below to help supplement the first A in harmonics. We were all three so blissfully happy that I don't think I've ever had a more wonderful time with my first symphony. Then, happily charged for some time, we went walking in the Rosenthal. 
The Rosenthal is a famous park in Leipzig, and the Webers were a couple Mahler was friendly with during his time there. Captain Karl von Weber was the grandson of the composer Karl Maria von Weber. He was the one who gave Mahler the unfinished sketches of Die Drei Pintos to complete. There is one thing about this charming story, however, that Mahler understandably did not tell Natalie. He was in love with Weber's wife, Marion. <gasps> and apparently she returned his feelings. In an age when such a scandal could still threaten a young conductor's career, this was the last thing Mahler would have wanted to put in his program notes. Nevertheless, many believe this illicit affair may have in part inspired this symphony. Indeed, Mahler's protege, the conductor Bruno Walter, mysteriously tells us that in the first symphony, the music is thoroughly colored and influenced by occurrences in Mahler's life. Mahler himself wrote that the reason why a composition comes into being at all is bound to be something the composer has experienced, something real. At the same time, he warns us that the real-life experience was the reason for the work, not its content. But what happened with Marion? All in good time, Carlos. All in good time. Okay, then back to the symphony. Originally, Mahler included a second movement called Blumin, awards based on the German Blumen, or flowers. Mahler originally wrote this piece as part of music meant to accompany a play, but decided to include it in the first performances of his symphony. Natalie described this movement as a sentimental, indulgent movement, the love episode. After the first few performances, however, Mahler decided to remove it, telling Natalie that it was the youthful folly of his hero. Mahler's reason for including it and later delaying it have been the subject of much speculation. While it might sound pretty enough to us, critics have not been kind to this piece, arguing that it is simplistic, repetitive, overly sentimental and a cliché compared with the other movements. Some think that Mahler included it so that the symphony would have a conventional slow movement, but later rejected it as unnecessary. Others speculate that Mahler may have had more personal reasons for his decisions. Marion Weber reportedly had an inscribed copy of this movement given to her by Mahler. Could this youthful folly have been associated with her? It certainly has its passionate moments. Maybe his decisions regarding this movement had something to do with his changing feelings for her. Whatever Mahler's motivation, almost all conductors today respect Mahler's final intentions and perform the symphony without the Blumina movement, although it is occasionally performed on its own. The next movement takes us from the solitude of nature into human society with a landler. The Landler is perhaps the most Austrian of folk dances. In 3-4 time, it is a rustic predecessor of the waltz. Mahler loved folk music and folk poetry. He believed it was closer to nature than the more sophisticated works of celebrated poets. The lilting rhythms of the Landler can be found in many of Mahler's works, but the meaning of this dance varies considerably depending on the context. Mahler subtitled this movement with full sails and told Natalie, 
the young man is getting around in the world much more vigorously, sturdily, and competently. It is in A major, the same close relative of D major that feature prominently in the first movement, brimming with youthful energy and confidence. Like many of the other melodies in this symphony, its main theme is characterized by an ascending scale. Compare the Joy of Nature theme from the first movement with this one. In most respects, this is the most conventional of the symphony's movements, but Mahler still has some fun with adventurous harmonies that go far beyond anything you'd hear at a country dance. As is traditional in dance movements, whether they be minuets, waltzes, or even landlers, this movement has a contrasting middle section. Another landler appears, but softer, slower, and sweeter than the first. Is this the slow dance? We'll leave that for you to decide. This dance may sound sweet and fairly traditional, but there is one unusual thing about it. It wanders through many different keys. The shifting harmonies create magical effects of light and shadow, lending this landler a sophistication which belies its surface naivete. The first landler then returns, although this is not a literal repeat as most composers will have written. Mahler reworks and shortens the first section. We just need enough to remind us of it. The movement races to its end with an exuberant hurrah. Until now, this symphony has been quite optimistic. We had some hiking in the countryside, some dancing, and things seemed to be going pretty well for our hero. In the third movement, however, Mahler told Natalie, by now he, my hero, has already found a hair in his soup and it has spoiled his appetite. Something has definitely gone awry. Mahler called this movement a funeral march. Here's how it begins. Wait, that sounds familiar. Is that Frere Jacques as a funeral march? Indeed it is. Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques. Mother took the familiar children's song, Frere Jacques, also known as Bruder Martin, or Bruder Jacob in German, and turned it into a funeral march in D minor, the key of the dark forest at the beginning of the symphony. It begins played by a solo double bass accompanied only by the timpani. Mahler said, the instruments are disguised and masked and appear as it were in strange shapes. 
Everything was sound muted and subdued like passing shadows, bringing out each entry distinctly and in a startling new coloration caused me a great deal of trouble. Finally, I succeeded in getting the effect which you find so eerie and unusual. To this day, I don't think anyone has caught on to my way of achieving it. If I want to produce a soft, subdued sound, I don't give it to an instrument which produces it easily, but rather to one which can get it only with effort and under pressure. I often make the basses and bassoons squeak on the highest notes, while my flute huffs and puffs down below. An oboe interjects with a rather squeaky accompaniment. Gradually, more and more instruments enter in canon, as one would expect with a round like Frederick Jack. So, who died? Well, that's a complicated question. Needless to say, turning a children's song into a funeral march is rather strange, and it seems to demand some sort of explanation. Natalie tells us that the decision to use the Frederick Jack melody was made after Mahler had finished composing the rest of the movement because it fit over the pedal point which he needed. A pedal point is a sustained bass note. Mahler may thus have used it for purely musical reasons, since it also is characterized by the rising scales that make up the building blocks of so many of the other melodies in this symphony. But Mahler himself left us some other hints as well. For one, he said he took inspiration from a famous print called The Huntsman's Funeral. It depicts a parade of forest animals carrying the coffin of the huntsman in a funeral procession. The forest animals make a great show of their grief, but beneath the tears they are smiling. After all, they don't have to worry about being shot by the hunter anymore. Is this then the hunter's funeral march, an expression of mock grief? Mahler also said, what matters is only the mood that has to be expressed. So maybe we should be wary of such a literal interpretation. But what is the mood of this music? In the same letter to a conductor quoted earlier, Mahler instructed him to conduct the movement humorously, but in an eerie way. Mahler's contemporary, the composer Richard Strauss, also noted a dark humor in this music, writing in his diary that the symphony contained a very original, Humorous funeral march. Humorous? Is this some twisted musical joke? Perhaps, but what happens next is even more puzzling. The oboes enter with a sly melody. Then a band of street musicians appears. In Mahler's time, there was an increasingly distinct divide between serious music and lighter more popular music. This distinction was by no means a hard and fast one. Composers of serious music would sometimes write more popular works. Nevertheless, there was an expectation that serious music should scale the heights and plumb the depths, strive for great beauty, sophistication and originality, while popular music should be fairly simple, short, catchy, light-hearted and undemanding to listen to. Symphonies were art, not entertainment. Mahler himself was famously omnivorous in his musical tastes. He loved listening to passing organ grinders, marching bands, street singers, and dance bands. This appreciation of music, considered to be lowbrow, was reflected in his own serious music. In a conversation with his contemporary, the composer Jean Sibelius, he famously said that in his opinion, a symphony must be like the world, it must embrace everything.
With this all-embracing philosophy of music, many believe that Mahler uses allusions to many different styles of music symbolically in his symphonies. By imitating recognizable styles, he can comment on society, history, and philosophy, communicating his own vision and spiritual message to the audience, at least in theory. This passage, and others like it, was very controversial in Mahler's day. Many composers have put folk music in their works, but they usually dressed it up a bit, using the sophistication of their craft to blend it into their own style of composing. Here, Mahler's street musicians are extremely literal. This was basically what real street musicians would have sounded like in Mahler's day. Many of his audience members felt this humble music was not fit to appear in something as grand as a symphony. But the context, perhaps, was even more disturbing. Why does this light-hearted, even trivial music appear after a funeral march? Indeed, in this score, Mahler underlines the apparent inappropriateness of this music by marking it meet parody or with parody. But who or what is being parodied? Is this a parody of street music? Is the street music parodying the funeral march? Most likely, it is the hero of our story who is the butt of his musical joke. But this is not all there is to say about this unassuming little passage, oh no. There is another wrinkle that is perhaps even more complex. Many people have compared this passage with klezmer music and have cited it as an example of the influence that Mahler's own Jewish heritage had on his music. Mahler himself, however, described this passage as a group of bohemian musicians. Furthermore, Theodore Fischer, Mahler's childhood friend, later noted that this movement reminded him of the Hatcho, a traditional Czech folk dance that begins slowly and dirge-like before erupting into faster, livelier music. So is this music Jewish or Czech? We will leave that to the ethnomusicologists to decide. Perhaps, like Mahler himself, it was influenced by both musical cultures. After the dance music episode, the funeral march briefly returns. Accompanied by the harp, the music falls down a fifth into a dreamlike G major. We hear sweet new melody played by muted first violins divided into three parts. In the score, Mahler marks it very simply and artlessly, like a folk song. This melody actually comes from the same set of songs from which Mahler took the Joy of Nature melody of the first movement. This song is called The Two Blue Eyes of My Darling. It is the last song in the set, called The Songs of a Wayfarer in which each song is a meditation on the singer's unrequited love for a girl who married someone else. The words that go with this melody run thus. In the street stands a linden tree. There did I for the first time find rest in sleep. Under the linden tree that snowed its blossoms over me, there I did not know what life is like. All, all was good again. All, all love and pain. 
and world and dream. Mahler wrote these songs after he had fallen rather dismally in love with Johanna Richter, a coloratura soprano he had met in Kassel. The exact nature of their relationship is unknown, but by all accounts it was not a happy one. Maybe this movement is about frustrated love? Such a connection might well tie in with Mahler's relationship with Marion von Bever. After this episode, the funeral march returns. The dance music is not far behind, but this time multiple dance bands seem to be playing at the same time as their melodies collide. The movement dies away as the funeral procession fades into the distance. Without warning, the last movement begins. Mahler described this movement as Dal Inferno al Paradiso, from the Inferno to Paradise, a reference to Dante's divine comedy. He said it was the cry of a deeply wounded heart. Part of the reason why the beginning of this movement is so shocking is that it is in the wrong key. After the end of the funeral march in D minor, it begins with an extremely loud, dissonant and unstable chord that completely clashes with the last note of the previous movement. Listen to that dissonance. This music is racked with pain and ultimately resolves to F minor. Normally, a symphony begins and ends in the same key. There might be a change from minor to major, or vice versa, but the ending should at least be in a key centered on the same note as the beginning in order to bring about a sense of resolution. The first movement of this symphony was mainly in D major, the second in A, the third in D minor, all fairly normal keys for a symphony in D major. Now the music has gone to the wrong key, the distant key of F minor. Instead of wrapping things up and heading home, the finale plunges us into a fiery purgatory. After a harrowing introduction, the main theme emerges. This theme has its roots in the F minor music of the first movement. This is now this. It is as if the possibility of this disaster has been with us from the beginning. The theme unfolds with unrelenting intensity. At last, it retreats into the depths of the orchestra. 
a chromatic violin line full of yearning emerges, leading to a new melody in D-flat major. Mark sea gesangbol, or fairy singing, this melody is unmistakably a love theme. This melody and the deeply wounded heart were likely inspired by Mahler's affair with Marion Weber. According to one account, Mahler and Marion planned to elope, but in the end, Marion decided not to abandon her husband and children. Another version has Captain von Weber losing his mind and firing a gun at a train station. We will never know for certain what really happened, but the conclusion of their relationship was surely harrowing enough to inspire the inferno that began this movement and the theme we hear now. Full of tenderness and longing, it is also full of resignation. This is a love that was not meant to be. The theme fades away and we hear a surprising return of the falling fords and chromatic bass line from the dark forest of the first movement. The inferno theme from the beginning of the movement erupts. This torture melody is now fragmented and developed with increasing intensity. Suddenly the music becomes quiet and we hear something new. This new theme is derived from the Inferno theme, but transformed from minor to major. It is as if amid a scene of chaos and destruction, we have glimpsed something in the distance to give us hope. Could this be a vision of Paradiso? This moment of calm is short-lived, and we are soon back in the fray. Just as we feel we are unable to go on, the Paradiso theme returns. Breakthrough. This brilliant moment gave Mahler some trouble, as he explained to Natalie. Again and again, the music had fallen from brief glimpses of light into the darkest depths of despair. Now, an enduring triumphal victory had to be won. As I discovered after considerable vain groping, this could be achieved by modulating from one key to the key a whole tone above, from C major 
to D major. The principal key. Now, this could have been managed very easily by rising from C to C sharp, then to D. But everyone would have known that D would be the next step. My D chord, however, had to sound as though it had fallen from heaven, as though it had come from a different world. Here's how he did it. The Paradiso theme begins in C major. But instead of ending in the same key, it takes a turn toward F. If it had gone to F, it would have sounded fairly ordinary, like this. Instead, D major falls from heaven. It is as if we have been rescued from the inferno of F minor and in a single moment have been sent to the paradiso of D major, the home key of the whole symphony. The mysterious falling force of the beginning of the symphony now returns in a triumphant D major. This breakthrough does not last, however. In a letter to his fellow composer Richard Strauss, Mahler explained, my intention was to show a struggle in which victory is furthest from the protagonist just when he believes it's the closest. This is the nature of every spiritual struggle. For there, it is by no means so simple to become a hero. The heroic music fades away and we find ourselves back in the forest where the symphony began. Nature, indifferent to human care, seems unchanged. We almost wonder if all that we have experienced really happened. Amid the chirping of birds, our thoughts return to the love theme. Out of the love theme, the music surges forth with a remembrance of Lumina. The music fades away. The violas interject a note of unrest. Just when we seem to have escaped, the Inferno theme returns, threatening to undo the triumph of D major. The intense music from the first movement returns. Only through a return to nature can we escape the pain of impossible love. Just as before, it leads to a breakthrough, but this time for real. The triumphant theme returns, establishing D major for good. In 
a letter to a fellow conductor, Mahler exhorted, a reinforcement of the horn section is most desirable, and a fifth trumpet will be fantastic if you can find one. Mahler wanted to save the best for last. The movement ends in a blaze of glory. If that isn't a happy ending, I don't know what is. Well, you might be surprised by what Mahler said about it. Really? Uh, what do you mean? Well, Natalie claims Mahler told her that the aim of art as I see it must be the ultimate liberation from a transcendence of sorrow. Admittedly, this aim is achieved in my first, but in fact, the victory is won only with the death of my struggling titan. Every time he raises his head above the surging waves of life, and the conquering, transcendent motif accompanies him, he is struck down again by the blows of fate. What? The hero dies? But the ending was so happy. Natalie must have made that up. It's not just Natalie. The conductor Bruno Walter, who was one of Mahler's protégés, also says, In the fourth movement, the raging vehemence of Mahler's nature breaks forth and with relentless force gains a triumphant victory over life. But how can that be? Don't worry, Natalie goes on. All he had in mind was a powerfully heroic individual, his life and suffering, struggles and defeat at the hands of fate. The true high redemption only comes in the second symphony. Perhaps he meant Paradiso literally. In a letter to Max Marshalk, Mahler also confirmed that the hero who dies in the first symphony comes back in the second. In the second symphony, we get to find out what happens to him after death. It might involve the coming of the apocalypse. Oh, Carlos, hold on there. Sounds like a story for another podcast. The audience at the premiere in Budapest in 1889 didn't know any of this, however. Mahler only added program notes at the second performance. The first half of this symphony seemed to go over well, but they found the funeral march and the finale baffling. Mahler's friend Fritz Lohr reported that a large section of the audience, having as usual no taste for formal innovations, was painfully disconcerted by that dynamic force of tragic expression that rages in this work. A fashionable lady sitting near to me was so startled by the last movement that she dropped all the things she was holding. Mahler was understandably disappointed. He told Natalie, Naively, I imagine that it will be child's play for performers and listeners, and would have such immediate appeal that I should be able to leave on the profits and go on composing. How great was my surprise when it turned out quite differently. In Budapest, where I first performed it, my friends avoided me afterwards. No one dared to mention the performance or the work to me, and I went about like a leper or an outlaw. Poor Mahler. Unfortunately, this was to be the trend throughout Mahler's life. While widely praised as a conductor, his compositions rarely met with equal success and were not widely accepted during his lifetime. Mahler would have to go on conducting operas to make a living, cramming all of his composing into the off-season during the summer.
Today, Mahler's first is one of his most popular and frequently performed works. Indeed, the qualities that puzzle Mahler's contemporaries, its irony, rich musical allusions and intense emotions, are what draw people to it today. You should be careful with this work, however. It's pretty powerful stuff. Why? What could happen? Well, in 1994, I was living in Canada, working for another orchestra. I was in Dallas, actually, to attend the League of American Orchestra's annual conference. The Houston Symphony trekked up to Dallas to perform the second concert of the conference. The hall was filled with a veritable who's who of the orchestra business. On the program was Mahler's Symphony No. 1. As you can imagine, Christoph Eschenbach and the Houston Symphony practically blew the roof off the Meyerson Symphony Center with an electrifying performance. There must have been five or six curtain calls for Christoph and the orchestra. I remember turning to my colleague as we were madly clapping along with everyone else and saying, I want to work for Christoph and the Houston Symphony. And a year and a half later, my husband and I moved to Houston, and I've been with the orchestra for 20 years. Aha! Uh -huh. Listeners beware. This symphony could change your life. Only for the better, Carlos. Only for the better. On the Music is a production of the Houston Symphony. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Please send your questions, comments, and feedback to onthemusic at houstonsymphony.org. Thank you for listening.